1934, a song was written by J. Fred Coots and Henry Gillespie. Listen to what they did to poor children with this song. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. That's supposed to make you feel good. It's not real jolly. How much does he know? What is he doing? Well, dude's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's careful. And he's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. So, be good, for goodness sake. And then it just repeats. Better watch out. The folklore of Christmas draws on Christian truth and brings it into the realm of myth with this jolly old character who's cuddly and is going to give you gifts and you can pay him off with cookies and milk. Uh, but he's watching. And it's a little, he's a little bit of an ominous figure. He's kind of omniscient. How's he watching? How much does he know? How do I know for sure if I'm on that list? That might make you a little paranoid. How do you know if I'm on the list? I don't know, just behave. How behaved? Like, is anyone perfect? How do you make the nice list? When are you on the naughty list? Well, when you read Scripture, it makes it pretty clear that what people have turned Santa Claus into mimics what God is like, but doesn't mimic it very well. God is omniscient, yes. He keeps a list. We learn about the book where he keeps names and the other book of transgressions. If you're forgiven, the transgression book, you're blotted out there. It's blotted out. The ancient form of erasing. And your name is put in the Lamb's book of life. So he's got the list. He doesn't have to check it twice, though, because he's God. But he keeps a list. The Bible makes it very pretty clear. We don't start out with some people in the nice list, some people in the naughty list, and then sometimes you switch. Everyone starts out on the naughty list. This is why Jesus came, to rescue people and get them off the naughty list and get them onto the nice list, not because now they're nice, but because Jesus fulfilled it for them. So that's how the transfer happens. But uh, when we look at lyrics like that, that remind us, maybe, in an awkward way, of this list, a question that we have to wrestle with is, which list am I on? Christmas should remind us of that. Yeah, we, we need Christmas. Why do we need Christmas? Because I'm on the wrong list. That's why I need Christmas. We can be so exposed to that truth and so hardened to it, we could get to a place, it's possible to get to a place, where you can no longer be transferred from the naughty list to the nice list. Now, Christmas is about forgiveness. Jesus came not to just be born in swaddling clothes, but to grow up and become a man who lived the perfect life that none of us could live, and then be killed, taking the punishment that all of us should have taken, so that he can bridge the gap as the innocent lamb 
to take care of the sacrifice and the justice that needed to be meted out and bring us into relationship with the Father. How do we get that? Well, repentance. Not through earning it. Not through being good enough. Not through you better watch out and then trying to clean up your act. We can't clean up our act. We're naughty inherently. But when we repent of our naughtiness, he changes us from the inside out. And it doesn't matter what you've done, how many times you've done it, your name can be transferred from one list to the other through repentance. Except for one sin. Jesus makes it plain in this passage that there's one sin that you can't come back from. And people don't know what to do. What do we do with this passage? Skip it. Pretend it's not there. No, it's there. Mark isn't the only one that records it, but we're going to see how Mark lays it out in Mark chapter 3. So if you need a Bible, please lift your hand up. And if you're thinking, wow, that's not a very Christmassy message. Yeah, it is. You're going to see why. If you need a Bible, uh, just slip your hand up so we can bring one to you. We want to make sure you're there. In the second book of the New Testament, Bible's made of Old Testament, New Testament. We're going to be the New Testament, second book, just past Matthew and in the book of Mark and in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark. You have a group of people that see what Jesus is doing. They see that he's healing people. They see that he's come to bring joy to people, peace to people. He's removing diseases. He's exercising demons from people that are demonized. But the scribes don't like it. The religious people don't like it. They're messing up. Their religion. He's messing up their religion, right? He's, he's wrecking their game. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 22, it says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan if... A kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter... They will be forgiven, but, verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness and is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So here you have a situation where Jesus is obviously who he says he is. We've seen it in earlier passages. He forgives a man of sins. They say, how can you forgive a man of sins? Only God can forgive sins. And he goes, yeah, you're talking to him. Let me show you that I'm the man I'm saying I am, that I am who I'm saying I am. I can offer forgiveness because I'm the same one who's the source of healing. And he tells the paralytic to get up and walk, and he gets up and walks. What do you do with that? You can't just say he's crazy. Because crazy people can't make paralytics walk. You can't just say he's a liar because... Lying people can't make people walk. 
So what do you do with Jesus? Jesus paints them into a corner. You either accept me or hate me. But it's going to be one of the two. So when they accuse him, they're going, look, he definitely has power. He has supernatural power that we can't explain. But he can't be from God. So what else do we have? Well, the only other source of supernatural power that we know about is demonic power. Yeah, that's it. It's demons fighting demons. He's using the power of Satan to cast out Satan's own demons. So Jesus has a two-tiered response to that, right? First, he says, well, that's not logical. What kind of leader of an army would say, here's our plan of attack. You guys are going to break off. You're going to flank us and attack us from the side. And then we're going to fight you back, and we'll see who comes out on top. Well, what about the army we're supposed to be fighting? Well, we'll get them next. Let's kill each other first. You know, that's illogical. Jesus is saying that that doesn't make any sense. Satan is trying to take over and increase his reign in this world. And with some people, he's even gotten to the point where they're demonized. Now, it's hard to understand what is demonized. Hollywood has not done a good job of portraying what that actually is with spinning heads and, and green vomit and stuff. But what we, what we see is that people are beside themselves. They're not really in control of their faculties. And, and there's demonic spirit or spirits that are in full control. And they want this. They want to kind of uh, take over mankind to that extreme extent. But Jesus with one word just cast out, get out. Be quiet, get out. And so he says, that's not logical for me to undo everything that Satan is trying to do. That doesn't make sense. But he's not content to just expose the illogic, right? He's not just going to say, so I win the argument, you lose, goodbye. Oh, he wants to give them a warning and go, this isn't just an issue of bad logic. Rejecting me is not just an issue of bad logic. And we can't just agree to disagree. You're going to die if I'm not your hope. And there's one thing that you can do where Christmas will never mean what it's supposed to mean to you. The baby in the manger is just going to be a baby in a manger. It's just going to be a story. It'll never rescue you if you commit a sin that makes it impossible to rescue you. So your mind might be reeling right now. What sin might that be? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I've done this. I've done that. I'm still doing this. What is it? What can we do that's so bad? Is it doing something too many times? Is it doing something too obviously, too egregiously? Is it a flagrant version of it? Well, we need to be comforted, first of all, when he says, verse 28. Now, Jesus pads his answer, right? Verse 28, Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. All sins. The thing you did yesterday, the thing you did last year, the thing you did when you were a kid, that's forgivable. Which ones? Any of them. Well, you don't know the details, Pastor. I don't need to know the details. Jesus knows the details, and he's saying all of them are forgivable. says it right there. Okay, now that doesn't make sense. You started out the sermon by saying there's one thing that's not forgivable, and now you're saying everything that I've ever done is forgivable. Right. When we talk about acts of sin, a thing that you do, that you're not supposed to do, or something that you're supposed to do that you don't do, right? There's sins of commission and sins of omission. Things that you do that you're not supposed to do, and things that you don't do that you are supposed to do, those are sins. But all of those are forgivable. He even says, all the blasphemies that are uttered, 
are forgivable. Then in verse 29, he's talking about something else. He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now when we look at that, we go, okay, what is it about the Holy Spirit? You can blaspheme against Christ, you can blaspheme the Father, you can blaspheme pastors, you can blaspheme people, you can blaspheme angels, but hold up, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because then it's over. What is the primary work of the Holy Spirit? Well, when you flip through Scripture, it tells us the Holy Spirit is the source of conviction. He's the one that comes to convict the world. When you feel guilty, and you're like, man, I, man, that sermon, or that passage, or that verse, or that song, that's really getting to me. That's not just your guilty conscience. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. The Bible teaches that's, one of the, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of sin. If you blaspheme that, you can't be convicted of sin. If you can't be convicted of sin, you'll never repent. If you never repent, how can you possibly have forgiveness? So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not committing adultery, saying a cuss word. It's not even taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not dishonoring the Sabbath. It's not murdering somebody, someone. It's not even murdering many people. It's coming to a point where you're unforgivable because grace is right in front of you and you spit on it. You don't want it. Look at how he qualifies it again in verse 30. Mark does. He wants you, Mark wants you to not be confused. He's not talking about individual sins. He's saying, listen to what he says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now here you have Jesus, who's obviously the Son of God. He's He's good. He doesn't break any laws of the Old Testament. He breaks some of their traditions just to mess with them. But he doesn't break any laws of the Bible. He doesn't commit any sins. He's never out of control. It would be weird to be around this person. He's perfect. We've never been around a perfect person. So he's, he's weird. He doesn't ever, ever do anything wrong. He never gives you the wrong look. He never cuts you off unless it's intentional for a lesson. He's the perfect listener, the perfect talker. How do you strike the balance? I don't know. He strikes it perfectly, obviously. And they're taking this man who, and he's not like a pompous, like, look how good I am. He's out there skipping meals to heal a person and heal the next person and heal the next person to where his family thinks he's out of his mind because he's not even eating. And he's working with these crowds and he never sends them away. He tirelessly exudes his human effort, he gets tired. Catch him sleeping in a boat in the next chapter because he's human. But he tirelessly works to remove diseases, remove demons, correct the wrong teachers, help the poor, help the people who don't understand, the ignorant. And he, he demonstrates power when he does it. It's just so obvious who he is. And they're so... Uh, bent on not receiving Christ's message, that the best they can come up with is accuse him of being demonic. There's a passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 5.20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. They're so corrupt, so hardened, 
that Jesus Christ, rather than receiving him and accepting his message, they're just going to say, yeah, that's demonic is what it is. Yeah, that's demonic. Yeah, right, that's what, that's it. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Just whatever they need to say to reject the obvious message of Jesus Christ. So the question everyone wants to know, can someone commit the unforgivable sin today? That's tough. Some people say no. Some people say you cannot commit the unforgivable sin today because the reason why they, had it, they did it was because Jesus himself in person was right in front of them. And they rejected the obvious message that he had. But I don't think that's accurate. I think today someone can be so exposed to the gospel that they can go, I get it. Now there's people that don't get the gospel. There's lots of people that think they get the gospel and then they really don't get the gospel. They don't understand it. You might ask them, explain the gospel to me. A couple sentences in, you're like, oh man, you're way off, man. That's a whole other religion. That's not the gospel, let me explain it to you, right? Those people that think they understand the gospel, and they don't, but there are people that completely understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. They get it, and they believe it. They believe it's true. But they don't want it, because they hate it. That's scary, and that should be scary, and I think that's the weight of this passage. Now, if you're in here going, oh my, have I, have I committed the unforgivable sin? I really hope I haven't f- f- committed the unforgivable sin because I, I don't want to be separated from God. If, you, if you're asking that question, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. <laughs> Someone who commits the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, oh, they know. They know exactly what they're rejecting and why. They hate it. They don't want it. But let me explain it to you. No, no, no. It's not a matter of explanation. They may be able to explain it to you better than you can explain it to someone else. They understand it that thoroughly. These were the scribes. Jesus, right in front of them, is fulfilling the very scriptures that they've spent time memorizing, transcripting, and lecturing to people in the synagogue. They don't want it. Because Jesus costs too much. He messes up my religion. He's asking me to change stuff. He's asking me to be different, submit to him. I don't want to submit to him. I want to be my own king. I want to be my own queen. And in the face of full revelation, to just reject it, that's a dangerous place to be. The Holy Spirit convicts you. The Holy Spirit does something inside of you to illuminate you so that you recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, that the message of Christmas, it's truth, it's not folklore. You understand that, you know that deep down inside, but you suppress it and you reject it because you hate it. You hate what it would do to you, you're scared of it, it bothers you, and so you push it away. That's not forgivable because repentance is required and repentance is the very thing that you're rejecting. What's scary about a time like Christmas is how familiar Christmas is. A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago maybe it was, I went to my daughter's high school and the choir 
surrounded the entire auditorium filled with hundreds of parents. And they were holding candles and the lights went dim. And there's, there's hundreds of people in there. Buddhists, atheists, I'm sure some of them are Christian, maybe nominal Christians, some that get it, some that don't get it. And in that room, in that auditorium filled with hundreds of people, they sang, Mary, did you know? Well, that's a nice tune. Made popular now again by a group that, I don't know if they're Christian or not, but it's all over the place. It's on YouTube. It's, it's on Facebook. And I'm sitting there listening to lyrics like, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? That's one, day, that's one way Jesus... Uh, demonstrated that he's God. Because in the Old Testament, you read about how God is in control of the waves. Who's in control of the waves? Who's in control of the deeps? Who created the depths? God. And then Jesus walks on the depths. He owns it. There's a storm. He silences it. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? That your baby boy has come to make you new? The child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Do you know that your baby boy gave sight to a blind man? That your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? That your baby boy has walked where angels trod? That when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. I was looking around like, so straight up worship service up in Lake Park High School. I thought to myself, people seem to be okay with this. Nobody had consternation displayed on their faces. You know? Nobody walked out. It wasn't like some of the kids were like not singing, because I don't believe this nonsense. They were with their candles, blah, getting their A. You know? Singing those lyrics. At first I thought, wow, that's really cool. Nobody's rejecting it. Nobody's up in arms about it. It doesn't bother them. Because somebody committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't want to sing that song. But there's another danger. Where we're so cool with it, it doesn't bother us when it should. We're like, meh, it's a song. We're so familiar with Christmas and the baby, you know, the star and the, the magi and the gifts. And we're just so, it's, it's so familiar. We're so Christianized that we're kind of inoculated to the message itself. And that's a danger. There's another group that Mark points out here in this passage. If you bring your eyes up a couple of verses, verse 20 Two little verses he squeezes in there. We looked at them last week. But this is a different kind of group. This isn't a group that commits a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a different kind of group. It's his own family. Verse 20, Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So he's surrounded by these crowds. He's skipping meals. Verse 21, When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. That's the same word you would use for an arrest, for jumping a dude in an alley, to mug him. I mean, to jump on Jesus and grab him. But not to, not to hurt him, but to try to feed him and stop him from doing all this ministry stuff. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. This dude's crazy. 
And then the next line, you have another group that's going, he's, he's possessed by demons. So the scribes think he's possessed by demons, and his own family, they just think he's nuts. They don't think he's demonic. They agree with his message. They accept his message. They just don't get it. They don't get it. Why would you extend yourself healing all day? Why would you skip meals for this? We get it's important. We get that you're fulfilling the Old Testament verses. But you have to eat. The other thing's important. Come on, we're supposed to play Monopoly tonight. It's family time. Seize him. And then you look at verse 31. Right after he talked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Mark wants to get back to the other one, the other group. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now we'll pause there a second. This is them wanting to seize him again. They couldn't get inside the house because there's too many crowds, so they sent in a message. Now you remember when you were a kid, and another kid came up to you and you were playing outside. Hey, your mom, I just saw your mom, and she said, You need to come home now. You're like, really? Was she upset? Was she angry? Did she have this look or that look? Did she say it like this or like that? Because you want to know if you're coming home to a nice warm meal or a spank. But you know you get home. You don't just say another round. Jesus is getting called out by his mother and his brothers. Tell him to come outside now. It's now. It's time for dinner now. He's, this is enough now with the ministering and the healing and the teaching and the preaching. How long can he preach? Some of you might be thinking that now. (laughs) He doesn't play the game. So you have two groups. You have one group that are the scribes that think he's demonized. They get what he's talking about. They get that he's the Messiah. They get the message. They get what it costs if you accept it. But they don't accept it. They reject it. They get it, but they don't accept it. You have another group. It's his family members, his human family members, right? They accept his message. They're rolling with it. They're followers. They're they're rolling with it. They accept his message, but they don't get it. They don't get what it costs. They don't get what it means. They don't get that it's supposed to take over your life. They don't get that his agenda takes priority over every single agenda you thought you had. They don't get that yet. To them, it's like Jesus' message, it's good, it's nice, it just becomes a piece of this bigger picture called life. It's a piece of it. It doesn't take over the whole thing. It's a slot. I have my hobbies, I have my work, I have my friends, I have my marriage, my kids, you know, and then religion right here. And so they're saying, your piece of the pie, dude, it's, it's taking over the whole thing, man. So you need to stop. So they accept his message, but they don't get it. And then we're introduced to a third group. Here's Jesus' response to his mother and his brothers when they're outside seeking him. By the way, Mark makes a point that they're standing outside twice. Verse 31, they're standing outside, and then verse 32, the brothers are outside seeking you. They're not in with Jesus, they're kind of still on the outside. They're not blasphemers of the Holy Spirit, but they're still not, they're not, they're not in yet. The third group is the in-group. Verse 33, he answered them, Who are my mothers? Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, those younger folks in here, you're ever outside playing and you hear, hey, your mom's calling you. Don't use the Jesus 
That's Jesus only. <laughs> Who are my mothers and brothers? My fellowship at CFC, that's my family. I'm going to stay outside and play. No. But Jesus can do it. Verse 33, he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around them, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So, you have one group that gets it, but they don't accept it. You have another group that accepts it, but they don't get it. And he says, my real family are the ones that accept it, and they get it. They're about the will of God. You remember that episode of Mary and Martha? Right? And Martha's running around in the kitchen trying to get the meals together, and Mary's just a lump on a log, man, sitting in front of Jesus' feet, just listening to him ramble on and on about his good stuff. Good stuff. But we need to eat. And she's not helping me. Jesus, would you tell her to get up and help? And what does Jesus say? You're preparing a temporary meal, but she's chosen the better portion. An eternal meal that you can only get when I give it to you. And you're missing out on that. You're the one that's starving. He turns it on her. And we see that happening here. Hey, he's not eating. Hey, he's not doing the mundane things that we're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to just let it take over life. You can't let it make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to just be a peace. They don't get it. And then he talks about this third group that's his true family. His true family are those who do the will of God. When? All the time. Well, what if it costs too much? doesn't matter. You do the will of God. You don't reject it because you're scared of it. You don't reject it because it's going to ruin your life or change your life or you know, turn your life upside down. You accept it, and you accept it on its terms, meaning you get it. You don't accept it on your own terms. Just as scary as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is an outright, I understand the religion and I hate it. That's scary. But it's also scary to still be on the outside when you accept it and the songs don't bother you, sermons don't bother you, church doesn't bother you, but you're still not doing the will of God. You're not following, right? You're not taking up your cross and living out the message of the gospel in your life. You haven't counted the cost. It's just a religion. It's a slice. It's a little piece that you add. And Jesus is saying, you're also on the outside. Not that it's not forgivable. It's not the unforgivable sin. But it's kind of, it's kind of a phase where you're kind of blinded to the fact that because you think you're, you're in. You think you get it because you're, you're going to church and you're going to the services and you're singing the songs and you're reading the Bible, but it hasn't clicked for you yet. And this is almost impossible for people to see. It's something you have to wrestle with between you and the Lord because it's hard to see. These people are involved. These people are with Jesus. They walk with Jesus. They have meals with Jesus. They're not against his message. They like his message. But one difference that is perceptible is what happens when Christianity starts to cost you. Who's still in? And brothers and sisters, in our very, very comfortable life here in the States, it makes it harder to tell. And we're over here trying to figure out our seating, you know, asking people, can you move up a little bit? And can we move in? And we're trying to make room. When I was in Vietnam, 
their entire sanctuary was the width of that row right there. That's it. And so they have three services, four services, five services, back to back. Why is it that small? Because they have to meet in a house. And in Vietnam, that's the width of homes. It'll be four levels of that width, but that's the width of the house. So they put a row of two chairs on one side, two or three chairs on the other side with a little Vietnamese-sized aisle in the middle. Everything's small in that country. And they pack them in, and they do what they can, just back-to-back services in a house. They're not allowed to put a sign out there. They can't put a sign that says Christian Fellowship Church. They can't go out there and hand out flyers because that would be illegal. You've got to keep it quiet. You don't have to literally meet underground, but you have to... It's costly to be a Christian. It's very against the grain to be a Christian. But they do what they have to do to meet. And when you go to other countries, when it costs something to be a Christian, your eyes are opened a little bit. You know, this isn't a culture. We're not trying to create a culture here. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a religion to kind of tack on to your life. It's supposed to take over your life. So, what group are you in? My hope is that you're not in the first group. Where you get it, you totally get it. You could write your own sermons. You understand. But you just hate it and you reject it. If you go too far down that path, there's no coming back. But if you're in the other group, where you kind of feel like you like Jesus, and you're cool with Christianity, but, but you haven't really understood it yet. That Jesus' agenda completely takes over everything in your life. That it's not about a Christmas season, but that it's all of life. That it impacts how you work, it impacts your friendships, it impacts how you watch movies, how you listen to music. You start filtering everything through the grid of worship instead of worship being a compartment that belongs on a Sunday morning. That's a radical difference. And only you can tell if you're in that group or if you're in the third group that gets it and accepts it whatever it costs. If I've got to sit here all day, I'm going to sit here all day. I'll follow him wherever he takes me. That's Jesus' family. And Christmas is the opportunity to move from that list onto that list. The naughty list to the nice list, but the nice list, it's, it takes over your life. It's not, oh, I'm on that list, cool, I could do whatever I want. That's not it. It's you understand the message, you get it, you get what it costs, you get that it's going to take over your life, and you say, yes, you accept it. Let's pray. Father, we understand that it's difficult when we see Christmas uh, to really see past the ornaments and the gift wrapping, to really see the true treasure of Christmas that is an opportunity for life change. It's an opportunity to be rescued from the list of being lost and being transferred to the list of rescued. And for anyone in here this morning, Lord, who's not made that transfer, Lord, we ask that you would convict and provide the grace so that they don't reject it, but understand it and accept it, to fully embrace the message of the gospel. For others of us, Lord, maybe we've kind of been circling around the exterior. We're kind of, we're close, but we're still on the outside. We're adopting Christian stuff. We're kind of cleaning up our language and showing up at church and doing things that are good to do, 
Maybe we're dropping bad habits and those are good. It's good to drop those. But it's still do's and don'ts. It's still checklists. It's still religious. And it's not Jesus and his total agenda that reigns in our lives. We ask that you would rescue us from that complacency, that apathy, that malaise, where we're just kind of checked out. Or we pray that you would fully engage us in your kingdom work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.